Welcome to The Landing, the podcast that goes into the brush with foresters, contract loggers, and operators of the Pacific Northwest timber industry. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Landing. I'm your host, Jason Davenport, and today we have on Jeff Brink from Brink's Land Improvement. How are you doing today, Jeff? I'm doing excellent, Jason. How about you? I'm doing pretty good, actually. I'm starting to feel a little bit better. Um not having some fatigue and stuff <clears throat> yesterday i was pretty tired so today feeling uh, yeah some people will do anything to get out of work i know right <laughs> <laughs> no we've had a few guys out the last few weeks seems like yeah it's everybody was getting it there for a bit and then seems like the dust settling so that's good yeah definitely so you have Brinks Land Improvement, and you guys do all kinds of crazy stuff. Like, I met you up the McKinsey doing the hazard tree removal, and I know that that's not all that you do. So if you wanted to kind of run through, like, what services you guys offer. Yeah, so um, I guess we start at the beginning, kind of before I was even around. My dad started the company's Brink Brothers with his uh, four brothers back in 1981. And then, uh, they just did like salvage logging kind of stuff, go into flash piles, clean out all the merch that the big guys left behind. And then in 86, uh, kind of financial shit hit his brothers left. He took over and then he logged for the Justina family for boy, like 20 or 30 years. And in 06, he called it quits from logging. It was just getting too margin oriented and, uh, probably just burnout was what it amounted to. So at that time he bought the gyro track in 08. That's our, it's just like a big masticator with knives on it. And I think it was probably his like retirement gig of like, can't retire, but can't keep working full time. Right. So he just did that. Yeah. Something to do here and there, but like everyone that's in the timber industry, like we're kind of just (laughs) built to produce. (laughs) Like, what do you do in retirement? Uh, you Work. stop working and spend money. <laughs> yeah. And what do we all do for the majority of our lives? Work hard and make money. So yep. that was like, you know, I was in high school when that happened. So when he had the big burger tower and all his sides going, I wasn't really like old enough to realize what it was. But as he did that, um, kind of just kind of grew a little bit here and there. He always just had a few people helping him. And then when I went to Oregon state for engineering, um, he's like, Hey, like, am I growing this thing or am I just piddling along until I don't want to anymore? And I was like, well, you should probably keep buying stuff. (laughs) So he kept buying stuff here and there. And then in 2010, I went to work for Q at, uh, building bridges and stuff. And that's where I met Joel that I'm doing that job up in McKinsey with. Um, and then in 14, I came back let's see, 2010, graduated high school, 13 was college, and then I came back in 16. So that's when I came back, and we've been doing a lot of commercial land clearing stuff, uh, work for wineries, some utility work here and there, um, but really we're in the, like, what it amounts to is I've always said uh, there's not a lot of people out there that can handle slash besides burning it. Right. So that's what we've really went after. It's mostly, like, small landowner plots, um, you know, you have somebody come in and log and then you're like, well, what do I do now? It's a pretty insurmountable task to get rid of the slash unless you're going to burn it. And a lot of people, uh, and a lot of places now you can't burn. So your options are like, well, do I move in a hundred thousand pound horizontal grinder or can we masticate it? Can we chip it? Um, that's generally if people call me for a logging job, I'm like, well, you know, I don't really, there's a lot of people out there really good at logging. And let them do that because I've got a lot of really expensive toys that kind of operate in this niche of slash and land clearing. Um, and that's really what we have tried to hang out and do. And then that's where this hazard tree project really worked in doing the wildfire cleanup is because that's the biggest kind of hurdle of that was, yeah, you're working on roads, taking trees out in weird spots, which we're used to. And then what do you do with the slash? Um, so we got to use pretty much all the tools we already had and then stepped up into 
several bigger ones too, just because the volume of the job was so big. So that's what we've been doing. Um, we're still out there cleaning up loose ends and then we're just kind of looking on to the next phase of, uh, you know, flash. It's a lot of it. And then there's a lot of development going on. Um, where it's like, Hey, getting a log on the ground and onto a truck in general, Oregonians have perfected and continue to polish, uh, which, uh, leads us to the logging show. So yeah, that's right. where that's at. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, so like, let's say someone, you know, they just had their back 10 acres logged off or whatever, and they're trying to decide, um, you know, what the best route is to take, you know, with their logging slash, um, how do you decide, like, if you're going to bring in a chipper or if the masticator is going to be good enough, like something that you can prep the ground to replant for? Yeah, it all depends on uh, what their end uses are. Generally, the equipment I have, I've got several that are, like, the only ones in the state. Um, Advanced Land Management out of Lebanon has some pieces, too, and he does a bunch of farm conversions. Right. But really, it's like you know, Hey, what do you want to do with the ground? Because I can't just give you a price sheet and you choose because it's like describing a color you've never seen before. <laughs> um, you know, do you want to pay me to mow in our big thousand horsepower horizontal grinder for two hours of work? Right. Or can we move in this like 300 horsepower steel track masticator? And it really depends on like, does the slash, can the slash just be like masticated in place, which is pretty much just like chipping and blowing it back on the ground. And then how much rock is there, um, things of that nature that really affect like slope. Uh, what are you doing with it? Is it going to be a pasture that cows are in or do you need to like till the ground? Because you start going into, I'm like, am I making it a lawn when I'm done? Because there's different levels and it just kind of like goes up exponentially. Um, uh, <clears throat> and same with like somebody's putting a house in, they need the stumps gone. Everybody with an excavator can dig up a stump and then you're like, Oh shit what do I do with this four foot diameter stump? <laughs> we run into it all the time. You're like, well, you can burn it. You sit there watching it burn forever. Yeah. Right. For uh, a week. And yeah. We have a 400 horsepower stump grinder that we're taking out on a 300 acre conversion. And you know, it's just like, I'm all about get in and get out as quickly as possible. And we have just found that by the time I dilly dick around with burning, I've got the tools to be in and out of there fast enough that it just makes financial sense for me anyways to just not burn because you know, like by the time you pile it and then you go wait around and go back, we stay pretty dang busy all the time. And it's not like I'm like slow right now and can go deal with burning all the jobs I had piled up. I'm like, I want to go in and four days be gone or 30 days or whatever it is every ground I cover, I want to cover once and be done as we leave. That makes sense. Yeah. That that one is, uh, that one we're taking that grinder down on is a winery conversion. And I mean, they had like three foot diameter Oaks and the last guys that did it, uh, just pushed them all over and burned them because they need it gone by April so they can rip it and plow it and all that stuff. But you need enough, heat to burn the stumps right so they were just gonna like burn everything i'm like well jesus is like number one pulp and it's paying pretty good right now so if we can ship stuff and then grind the stumps then we're just kind of dealing with normal slash which is right up our alley and the numbers worked out and we're going to be in and out of there faster so uh it was like a no-brainer that's pretty cool i never thought of either too like you were saying um you know, it depends what you're trying to get the ground ready for. Cause like we were talking about, <clears throat> if you got to get all the stumps out and then like, if you want to till the ground, you're going to have to grind everything up a, a lot smaller than you would if you were just going to leave it and uh, replant through it. Yeah. The hazelnut farmers have always been very picky on the chip size. They use those shredders for all their prunings. Okay. Um, and when you get into that farming stuff, like, you've got to either grind it into the soil. So it's just like into the dirt and they have those rotivators and cultivators that work really good for that. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just like, you know, Hey, I'm going to take this 600 horsepower tiller and till 500 acres of this orchard. 
you're like, oh, that's going to be expensive. And it's because it is. So it's just kind of like all goal oriented. Um, like what's the final use? And we've gotten into some timber owners that either a have stands, uh, close to municipalities or something to that effect. Where like, if you know that place where they logged right above LCC. Yeah. Like two years ago. Jobs. Yeah. We're like, okay, I've got all this material. I need to get rid of the slash. What are my options? And a lot of the times we run into of like a owner hires a logger to do the job and they do a great job and it's all piled and prepped, but nobody finds out you can't burn until it's time to burn. <laughs> and you go, Oh shit. Yeah. You know, what do I do now? <laughs> um, I can't leave it and I can't afford to do anything else with it because it wasn't piled, uh, anticipating a hundred thousand pound grinder to get to it. And that's where we've bought all these track chippers for this wildfire work. And that's where we're seeing a lot of it come into play is, you know, the masticators we had came into piles and it was like, it wasn't cost effective because you'd have like another log loader there to tear the pile apart. Then you don't have a place to like grind the material up. But you know, you run into these and you're like, Oh great. Like everyone knows what a chipper does. We just have one that weighs 50,000 pounds and is 600 horsepower and is fed by a shovel. Yeah. Right. So that's like kind of why we're going to be at the logging show is introducing that. It's a pretty new technology to Oregon just because you know, Hey, what do I want to spend half a million dollars on? Uh, a chipper doesn't come to everyone's front of their mind, but we already had the excuse to get one. And now we're just kind of spreading the word that, Hey, this tool's out here. When you guys run into these urban interface projects, it's a really cost effective tool and it spreads chips out over the unit. Uh, environmental people love it. And in general dealing with slash, it's cheaper than moving in a grinder. Uh, you know, you can get through the material faster with a grinder, but then you're like, great, I have this huge pile of chips. Yeah, <laughs> what right. do I do? And right now, hog fuel prices are like, you know, you might be able to pay the trucking to get it out of there. Uh, so that's what we're kind of finding is it's a niche tool. Uh, it's just like another, another option for people to consider. And we just need to let people know that it's out there. Uh, and it's a really good option for especially these larger timber, timber owners that are running into issues in these urban interface areas. Uh, yeah. I feel like that would also keep the neighbors a lot happier than uh, dealing with smoke from the slash piles too. Cause like when I was a kid working with my dad, we did a lot of like planting and stuff out on Lorraine highway and those kinds of places. And the neighbors would come out and they're like, you killed our forest, you know? And like my dad back then, didn't deal with people as well as he did now, but he'd always be like, well, if you show me where you're paying taxes on this piece of property, then I'll, uh, I'll listen to you, you know, but well, I've looked at it for 30 years. Yeah. I own visual rights. We moved up here from California just because of this forest. And my dad's like, yeah, it's yeah. not yours, dude. Yeah. So I don't yeah, know. I think that's all part of it. We're seeing some timber owners, even if they're not required to, that they're opting to go in and just kind of chip the high risk ones. There's a lot of these watersheds that just are like in inversion layers, inversion layers, like all winter. Yeah. And then they're like, Oh great. We have to burn in June. And they're in these places that are up against like, it's hard to find a place that's not been up against a burn now. So you're like, okay. Uh, it's all about like managing risks and if you can get it all chipped up and not have to burn in a higher risk time. Ultimately, that's their decision. Uh, the numbers have to make sense. But it has been a pretty cost-effective way to get rid of those higher-risk splash areas. So you guys do all that stuff, and then you also have, like, line clearance arborists and stuff on staff year-round, too? Or you just were doing that for the hazard tree stuff? Uh, no, we've got them year-round. We've got a couple good clients that we travel for. Um, and it really kind of birthed from that. And then we found it was a good tool. Um, I don't chase any of like the power line clearance stuff just because all the contracts are like time and material. And I really struggle with not having an incentive to be productive. Uh, just like, I'm sure that they're good contracts, but I'd probably like to fall asleep in the middle of the day. (laughs) So I like, it's always fun to find a like good tool. 
find a new way to do something just keeps it exciting. So we'll just chase onesies, twosies here and there. Um, and then we have to have them as part of our other work that we can't subcontract out. So, uh, we have them. And then in the winter, we do a lot of tree work stuff, mostly big removals that we need our self loader. We move a shovel in for things that a tree service isn't quite, uh, they have the skills to do it, but they don't have the like access to machinery. Right. So we'll kind of rack up these bigger removals all year and then go knock them out a few days here and there where it's really worth our while to do it. And then if you start comparing the numbers between us just moving in our skitter and self loader for a day on the same truck and taking logs to the mill versus some like tree service, that's going to take it out in firewood blocks. Like, Hey, I can pretty easily pay for a big crane when I can send that load to the mill and it offset the cost of the crane and make our life easy. So it's been a fun, more than anything, it's, it's a fun little side thing to do and it's something to do in the winter um, where some of our clearing work slows down that, you know, if if I'm uh, chipping out in the middle of nowhere with a shovel feeding a remote control chipper, that's one guy getting a whole shitload of stuff done. Uh, And then you look at like a tree removal process where you've got like a, a chipper blowing stuff into a truck and then an excavator there feeding it and a guy in the tree and a guy on the ground and somebody on the log truck. You're like, Oh, you know, that's a really good way to keep five guys busy. Uh, which is great when that's all you've got going. Right. But when you, I've got four chippers and a horizontal grinder, uh, those are the priority to keep kind of like busy and producing. And then we only go after, you know, they're only going to work if they're making money and if they're not, they're going to just get parked undercover and wait for the next one. Yeah, And that's that. when we'll go do those trees that, Hey, it's fun, something fun to do and it pays the bills and I'm not caught up pruning aunt Judy's, uh, like apple tree, <laughs> uh, happily defer those to the local guy. Right. No, that makes sense. It's kind of cool that you guys have, you know, you're very good at what you do and you serve like, even in the tree removals, it's kind of a, a very niche part of that, like where your specialty is and you serve that portion of that very well, you know? Yeah. It was funny when we got that job, uh, especially working with the monster cranes, we've done plenty of crane removals and I've always prided ourselves on like doing the work right and safe, which we had a couple OSHA visits up there cause somebody sees, a guy dangling off a crane ball. They're like, Holy shit. These guys are crazy. Yeah. But we had, yeah, you know, like we had a OSHA consult before we started and then you're looking at a 200 foot tall fur that's burned and you need to take it out with a crane. What's the safest way to get to the top climate and change your lanyard 40 times or just ride the crane to the top. Um, so there's a set of processes you have to follow to qualify to do that, which we did. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was, there was a lot of learning that went on, but it was all like uh, safe learning, if that makes sense. I think we've done over 2,800 picks with cranes of various sizes up there and haven't had any, uh, I would say, red flag events or something of that effect. Obviously there's some picks that don't go off perfectly, but those kind of just polish you and make you better for the next one. Uh, and having a good team is kind of all part of it. I had three kind of three climbers that were all lead climbers for respective tree services. Uh, and they all really enjoy working together and they were really like instrumental in keeping each other operating at a really high level and at a really safe level. For, man, going on 13 months now. So that crew has been really doing great. Uh, and then after this, we've got a bunch of other tree work to go do. But it probably won't be as glamorous as the 275 ton hanging over <laughs> Highway 126. But, you know, like how much how much of that can you expect to get in a few years' time? Yeah, I mean, really. But that that is one of the things that has been the most impressive to me. Like every time I go up to McKenzie with either you um, or with Joel at Sully Dock is like the safety record up there has been nothing short of impressive. 
Like that doesn't yeah. happen on accident. And um, I kind of wanted to get into a little bit of that because there's a lot of man hours that got put in up there and I haven't heard of any real major incidents or anything like that. So I kind of wanted to walk through that with you, like, you know what it takes yeah. to have that kind of a safety record on a project like that, especially in some of those spots with that, the ground is so steep and rocky and, you know, very unpredictable with the burnt timber. Yeah, that was probably coming into this job. Uh, Joel and I both came from a big engineering company that like safety culture was something that you had to manage from a high level. And we came from a job in Hawaii that had 400 craft on it. And then there was like a 200 staff and we were just one of the engineers. So I think we got set up from a really big company perspective of how to manage things from a high level. And like, you know, if you start letting a bunch of these like small things happen, uh, then a bigger one will happen. I use the rule of 10 of like, well, you get 10 close calls until that one's going to get you. And it might not get you bad, but those 10 little ones that don't get you too bad. One of them's going to, like screw you up. Right. And then out of those 10 incidents that screw you up, you're probably going to have a fatality. So I've hammered it home with all of my guys. And then especially with like, we have subcontractor fallers on that job. We've got union construction guys. We have uh, subcontracted flaggers where you're having a bunch of different people and it's not like one company safety culture. You've kind of, got to at a like high level disseminate down to foreman of like, this is our expectation and we need to know about all these close calls and if close calls continue to happen with this like niche group that needs like nipped in the butt because at the end of the day, we don't want any incidents. Like that's our expectation. Yeah. It's dangerous work, but I don't care if that tree's in a bad spot. I'll blow the fucker up. Like, you know, boom, I don't care. Uh, whatever it takes to do it safe. That is what it is. Uh, you know, they hired us to do the job right, not to do it cheap. Uh, and that's what we've kind of really taken the stance on is, hey, these incidents take care of the small ones and the big ones won't happen. And then what tool do we need to need to do it right? Uh, you know, that tree generally is not going to be going anywhere. So if we need to skip it, bring out a big crane, bring out the helicopter, get somebody out here to blow it up, take the lines down before we do it. Uh, those are all the like processes that have to go into the work planning to keep everyone safe. And I think it was as of the first of February, we had officially worked a hundred thousand man hours up there on the McKinsey. And a lot of those are flaggers and, um, things of that nature. But our only incident was a strain back. Somebody slipped on pavement, uh, bucking a log. And it was like, you know, to me, that's a little one. And we took that little one pretty seriously because we're like, Hey, you know why was, they were bucking a log on a shoulder. They should, they had corks on, which they needed to have on, but all it would have taken was the shovel that was sitting right there to set the log in the ditch and hold it up in the air. You know, you're like, you know, on the grand scheme, you're like, well, that's, you know, uh, it would be really easy to say, well, that stuff happens. Right. But, uh, taking the stance of taking care of the little things um, has really reaped its benefits for all of us. Like I, me and Joel left both, both left like an engineering field that we could have happily had a good life. Uh, I came back and took this business over and like, I didn't leave engineering to make more money. I just like working in the woods, solving problems, uh, kind of doing this niche work that we do. And I want all my guys to go home safe. Yeah. And if I ever found, looked up and saw things happening that I didn't like, I'd either just start selling stuff or letting people go because I do not want to operate a business where somebody may be coming to home from work different than they came to work uh, and kind of accepting that as a status quo. Uh, just not, not the right way to do business and if there's somebody else out there that'll do it cheaper and cut a corner that I won't power to them, hope OSHA gets them because right. that's the, that's the purpose of OSHA is to keep you know, like people safe. And sometimes they get a bad rap for kind of having some policies that don't make sense. But like, you know, at the end of the day, they're here to keep workers safe. 
Yeah. Uh, and it is what it is. I'm happy to follow all of their rules because we're all playing by the same rule book. Uh, even if something doesn't make sense, I don't make them. Right. I just know what it costs to follow through with their rules. Well, and that's the thing too, like with OSHA, as opposed to some of these other safety organizations, you know, like in the rock quarries, they have MSHA. Yeah. And in my experience, at least if you call OSHA and you're like, Hey guys, um, can we get a consult, you know, next week or whatever that, and you're trying to do everything safe and all that stuff. Like they're more than happy to come out and work with you. And it's like, unless you're doing something blatantly stupid, when they come out for a consult, like they're not going to write you a ticket. They're not, they're going to work with you and try and figure it all out. So. Yeah, it was pretty, that was my first time having a, my uncle works for OSHA. So he was like my unofficial consult <laughs> yeah. partner. And I can be like, Hey, you know, is this legal? And he'd kind of walk me through it, but we decided to have a formal consult for that job. Yeah. Just because like, okay, there's some trees on these cliffs that we can't get a cut or two safely we need to repel to it and fall the tree and then like what are the ramifications of that on like a big project that we know osha is going to be watching on so we called them and um they had a consult come out and they walked through the whole process before they come out and they're like hey we don't go we don't talk to compliance at all and everything that we tell you they give you like a formal report can't be used against you from the like compliance side or in court at all so it was a really like, you kind of get to peek behind the curtain and they're like, Hey, I get where you're coming from. If you were to get audited or you had an incident, this is what they would look for. Uh, talk through, Oh, we had a bunch of trees and your power lines. And they're like, well, these are your requirements from our perspective. It's based mostly on coordinating with the utility itself. If you do or do not have qualified people to work around them, uh, and then equipment distance, uh, unqualified people more than 10 feet. They give you all of that information and kind of help you in how you can do the work and do it safe. And then if you decide to not take their advice and that's totally up to you, you're not going to get like, uh, ramifications from OSHA, like, Oh, you had a consult. We told you to do something and then you didn't, here's your ticket. Uh, the compliance side are totally different employees that have no, like contact with the consulting side. Oh, gotcha. So it was a really cool experience. And as we ran into some things, like we had a tree that I couldn't put a climber in and we had to hang off the crane and like cut the tree into pieces because it was, it was like so crispy and there was nowhere to take it. And I was like, boy, this like, (laughs) can I hang off a crane and run a chainsaw at the same time? That just sounds like nuts. And we couldn't use a man basket because the man basket would have interfered like with the tree itself and would have made it more hazardous. Gotcha. So they were like, Oh boy, this is like a rabbit hole. And they got back to me and it all came down to like documenting the reasons why this method was the safest, having several confident people agree to it, <clears throat> which we had on site between arborists, myself, foresters, like, Hey, this is the safest way. And we did it and it went great. And if somebody had called OSHA and the OSHA person signed up, we would have had all of the things they were looking for because I had called the compliance side and checked. That's cool. So yeah, it was really interesting. And I've reached out to him several times for some of our other work. um, Just because you don't always know the right answer and they generally get it to you really fast. So it was great. That's always helpful. Um, My next thing is, those big crane picks that you were doing, uh, like flying the guys into the trees next to the power lines and all of that. Um, what goes into kind of planning jobs like that? Cause that, that's a lot of stuff, a lot of moving pieces to keep, you know, all going the same direction all at the same time. Like, so kind of what, uh, what has to go into the planning on those kinds of jobs? Cause you can't usually just call, you know, and get a 300 ton crane tomorrow. Yeah, uh, the crane contractor we used was Ness Campbell, and Mike Murphy was the guy we coordinated all that stuff with. Um, I had pretty good background working with cranes, 
So I would be able to know the tree size and then the pick size that I wanted and then map out where I knew the crane would have to sit. And based on that, I'm like, okay, well, I need to be able to pick 5,000 pounds net. So that's like after my safety deductions. Mm -hmm. So the crane has to be capable of maybe like 9,000 pounds at a hundred feet. And then I tell Mike, Hey, send me your crane chart for your 150, 200, 275 and 510 crane. And then from there, I'm going to be able to find out pretty quick what crane I need. And then you start looking at the mobilization costs and how long you're going to need it. And you're like, Oh, well maybe I should just use a hundred ton crane and it takes four times as long. Uh, It really is like, you know, Hey, uh, it all comes down to dollars and cents for like the, what crane you're using. But once the crane's set up and you're working, you know, the crane's just one of the tools you have there, whether it's an excavator, shovel, chipper. We had one spot where we had like 40 four foot diameter trees we had to take out. And that's when the 275 came out and we were reaching over the McKenzie highway to grab them and over power lines. But those were all things that we coordinated with the utility. We had written plans and ways to mitigate any pick becoming within like this bubble area of power lines. And in that particular area, we just said, Hey, we're not going to pick anything within 10 feet above the lines. So anything that we're cutting is going to be above the line. And that way, like, Hey, there's no way for this pick to go there because it's not going to go down like a crane picks it and it goes up. Right. And with our safety factors, uh, we were good for everything. And then once we got down to where the power line was, we had room to fall all of the like 40 foot tall stems. Uh, okay, and that was just one away from the power line. Exactly. So yeah. So it was really like, you know, you had 40 feet there to deal with falling them all at each other, but you didn't have 240 feet and that's how tall they all were. So it was like, Holy shit, <laughs> where do we put these? And there's like home sites on both sides and on the McKinsey, there was all those septic tanks that oh, yeah. at the time, and I think it's still unknown of like, okay, if I fall this tree and it blows up this person's septic tank and then they can't get a home rebuilt because their septic tank is damaged and Lane County won't let them put a new one there. I don't know about the legal ramifications, but I sure would feel terrible. Oh, definitely. So <laughs> we just had to yeah. like assume we couldn't damage anything because and to date, we, we have not, to our knowledge, there's, I'm sure some things that we are not aware of because things weren't marked, but you know, everything that we knew about, we tried really hard to protect because there's already enough damage done up there. Yeah. And like the whole process in general was, uh, it was hard to, you know, we were going through and removing trees along a highway that we had no coordination with landowners and like their property burned down. And then they come back up there and we're working on their property. And ODOT says, well, we sent you a letter. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, getting a letter is a lot different than the hundred trees that were on your property that were burned and a hazard to the public are now gone. And I'm standing there with a chainsaw in my hand, uh, like the first one to get an earful. Yeah, so, I imagine that there were some uncomfortable moments with some of that stuff. I know that it's, Joel, yeah, it's still happening. Yeah. I mean, like I think it's worse now because people, I mean, like the recovery is pretty much it, the road's going to get repaved this summer. And I think that like, it's going to be like, all right, that's it. But we went through once and then some more trees got marked and we have to do like ditch cleaning and chip spreading and some stuff on our contract that like, we need to make sure we are leaving it as we found but there's a lot of people that left and are now coming back and are like, Hey, what is this? And I'm like, well, that's for me. I tracked down your property. And I'm like, without my permission, I'm like, you know, it's kind of like inherent in my contract to do it. Uh, so it's, I think that, and I'm not doing as much like crazy fun stuff. So it's probably the same amount of coordination, coordinating with landowners as before, except I don't have like these awesome crane and helicopter picks to, offset it as like the awesome stuff. Yeah. Right. There's not as many big highs with the <laughs> yeah. other stuff. I've got all my guys on the McKinsey again, and we've got like a few chippers and my grinder is parked right now. So it's just kind of like, it's, it's great. Actually, it's slowed down a little bit. Um, 
but it's just a lot more coordinating with landowners. We're in like the final stretch. So doing our best to leave as many happy people behind as we can. Uh, I've got a big contract up there taking care of slash on the McKenzie from all the, there's a watershed resiliency program and a lot of landowners up there can enroll and have the pure water partners plant native vegetation. Okay. And instead of burn, they can have things chipped and spread. Uh, what they were finding up there is areas that, and Justina too, they replanted the first year and had a 90% fatality rate oh. because everything just got toasted. Yeah. And we had like a really dry early spring. <clears throat> so they're going through and planting all these riparian areas, which is awesome. But then they're like, you know, am I going to go around with a hose and water these? Cause right. like all of the organics burned off and they're just sitting here in this dry dirt. Yeah. And Bacon last year they went around and yeah, watered it, but areas that we had shipped and spread ships as part of our work during the highway project, uh-huh. instead of a 90% fatality, they had a 90% survival rate. Oh, wow. So it really comes down to uh, obvious speculation, but I've done some stuff up Fox hollow with soil temp. Mm-hmm. They have a bunch of like drought kill up there. And I think the chips just keep the soil a cooler temperature and hold a lot of that moisture in the dirt. And that is what they're trying to do with these private landowners. It's like, Hey, you might have your property logged and you're going to go to replant it, but, uh, nothing's going to really grow and thrive unless you a water it or are able to mulch it. And a good way to do that is like, Hey, I've got all this logging slash on my property, ship it and blow it back over the logging unit and then plant through the chips. And now your stand's going to actually grow and not just be scotch broom and blackberries. Uh, so kind of an interesting way to manage a burn. Um, but, it's the lessons that they've learned and are kind of having us go up there and do. Well, yeah, it's kind of, I mean, everyone just thinks that it's taking forever to do all this stuff, but we haven't had this severity of wildfire in this area, you know, like this. So it's like everyone has ideas of what will work and what won't work and getting trees back in the ground the year after it burnt makes sense. But all the organic materials gone off that dirt and it's just like, a lot of that dirt up there on, like you're saying on Justina, that's real, it's a real loose soil. So it's not like it's going to hold a lot of moisture and stuff like it would with all the <clears throat> big layer of organics on top. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. I feel, you know, you look at the overall impact of that burn and boy, Campbell and Justina and Fairhouser just got like hammered and it'll be interesting how their stands go because everywhere that they had to log and replant is really going to be tough to survive. And where you've seen them replant inside stuff, that's like five to 10 years old mm-hmm. where it's just like 20 feet and shorter and all the seedlings are doing great is, and it's cause they're shaded by those dead trees. Right. Uh, that's kind of funny. And you look at big burn, uh, watershed replanting and you're like, you know, how many chances does a, a company get to plant and like no in 30 years, that this is going to be, this whole area is going to be ready to rock and roll. Um, and it all depends on how quickly you can get seedlings in the ground and growing. And then I think this next year is going to be a real big one for invasives. Like they kind of got hit back, started to grow last year. And then you look around and you see blackberries and scotch broom like everywhere. That's what I'm and, worried about too. One of the things I'm worried about, cause those like the dirt conditions up there right now are perfect for scotch broom just to blow up yes and everybody that's moving around at first there wasn't any like active seeds being produced and i think this year uh it's going to be like a yellow wave and i know that eweb has a bunch of invasive species stuff that they're trying to like treat as much as they can but it's going to be a tough one on the at least the timber owner can go through and like nuke the whole stand and do a release Right. But there's going to be a lot of those fringe areas where they like a landowner's property that got logged and they're gone. And I think it's just going to be a, hopefully the seedlings out compete the uh, invasives, but I don't know. It'll be interesting to see the next few years will tell. Yeah, I think it will be. I think um, 
I think there's a lot of people that who are kind of expecting like instant results on some of this, like replanting and all that stuff. And it's just so hard even just to get seedlings right now with the demand because they only grow so many seedlings. You know, if they're planting 4 million seedlings a year, they only grow yeah. for the next year 4 million, but now there's demand for 80 million or whatever it is, you know, like hypothetical yeah. numbers. So it's, um, it's going to be interesting, I think. And it's just one of those things too, like I was saying earlier, it's going to take a little bit of, um, a little bit of trial and error in some of these different spots that got really burnt. Yeah, I agree. So kind of circling back to the crane stuff, like how, how do you know how much a tree is going to weigh? Cause that's one of the things that I was just, my mind was blown uh, when I was up there with the helicopter guys and uh, Aaron was like, Oh yeah, we can take eight feet of that piece. And I'm like, how do you even know, dude? Yeah, it's funny. We've always used wet log weight charts. So it's either an app on my phone or we have a laminated one that the climber keeps in their pocket. And when you're working with a crane, like you've got time, it's kind of just like a slow process. He swings over to you, you hook your rigging things up. You already know the diameter of the tree. You know, if it has branches, take how big of a piece that you estimated it is based on what species. And then when we were in furs, uh, we saw a 50% weight difference in old growth versus second growth. So it was something that factored in like pretty significantly. You're like, Oh, you know, this is a, I'm going to take a 5,000 pound pick and the crane's good for eight. But you thought it was a second growth and it was, and you end up cutting it. I mean, like you just forget, uh, you're like, yep, for 4,000, I'm going to take an eight foot chunk. And then, you end up you're in a old growth, you know, like you're really right up against your capacity, assuming that you were a hundred percent correct in your estimate. Right. And that's where you're like, Hey, we need to make sure that the only thing we have wrong here is our human error. So, uh, with a crane, you've got somebody on the ground you're talking to with Bluetooth. They'll usually do a gut check for you just to make sure your estimates, right? Just because if you can check with somebody and they have the chart there too, perfect. Right. Like your odds of accidentally going wrong are a lot lower. But when we were with a helicopter, it was so fast. Like the turns were like 30. Thank God we had traffic control because (laughs) I was like, boy, I need this five minute break. (laughs) Like every time we would do a cut, he's like, I'd be like, Oh wow, that was awesome. And I'd be like, Oh shit. I need to get ready. (laughs) Yeah. He's back already. So, uh, that's why we ended up deciding him to just call him out. Uh, I think when we started doing those first picks, we were talking to him on the radio and we're like, Hey, we're taking a 10 foot chunk. We think it's going to weigh this much and tell us how much it actually weighs based on the helicopter uh, scale. Right. And then usually off your first pick, you know, you're like log weight chart, what factor it's off. And sometimes for second growth, it was right on. And then those trees in particular were old growth, obviously, and they were off by like 50%. Oh, wow. So if we were like, hey, this says you can take a 10-footer, we're going to have you take a 7. Right. And that way, you know, it ended up being right about where we wanted to be. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of, it was business as usual. The helicopter was actually the easiest. It was a lot easier than a crane because that thing's holding on to that piece. And as soon as you cut it and it takes it with a crane, it's like holding it and you kind of like wait for the load to settle. So if you have it set up and it does some weird jolt and you're like right there, you can like eat your crane pick for breakfast. Right. And you know, you like have to have a good way to get away. Whereas that K-Max, I said, line up and put a thousand pounds on it. And I'd pretty much like get my cut snap cut through and say, it's yours. And he'd just go, and that thing would just, like, jump off the tree. It was just instantly tree. gone. It's instantly gone, and there'd, like, be a branch hanging in the pick that ordinarily on a crane, like, if it shook loose, could fall on me. Uh-huh. And it would land, like, in the middle of the river because <laughs> it was, like, gone. And he's, like, I was, like, wow, this is, like, actually safer than using the crane. Uh, that's one of the coolest things I've seen. And I, I guess for some of the people that might be listening to this that don't like follow my social media, um, you guys were cutting the 
hiked down on some hazard trees that were hanging over the McKenzie River. And the most effective way to do it was to use a KMAX helicopter instead of putting a huge crane in the middle of the highway for like a week. Um, so that's that's kind of what we're talking about with the helicopter crane work. And um, it's one of the most impressive operations I think I've seen in my life. Yeah, I, 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 I've climbed all before I had all these guys. And then for this job, I haven't been able to do much climbing. But after I did that, I was like, well, boys, it's all downhill from here. This is about <laughs> as cool as it gets. And hang up the spurs after this one, dude. <laughs> yeah, and my climbers were like, no, we can use a bigger helicopter next time. I was like, well, I wouldn't hold your breath. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, and then we worked with Croman. And that K-Max has those in like angled rotors, dual rotors. Yeah. So if you're below it, you weren't getting any prop wash. Gotcha. And then I was under that Croman when it was taken off from our yard. Uh-huh. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, thank God I wasn't under this thing. They just like sheared the branches off. Oh yeah. Those, uh... but you know, that thing like picks some shit. And oh, those... capacities over double what the K-Max is. That's pretty impressive, though. Like, it just blows my mind that you can have a helicopter, and then you're like, "Oh, yeah, it'll pick five thousand pounds, or it'll pick twelve thousand pounds, and fly oh, away." Oh yeah, that Coleman's like, "Oh, let me just hook up to my Dodge fifty five hundred and fly it across the river." Yeah, <laughs> and then the K Max was still like picking up a Toyota Tacoma or something. Yeah, and just flying that away with like, it like it's nothing. Yeah, that was pretty. Some pretty cool stuff that we got to do it was definitely rad and uh, like i'm i've been really happy to be a part of all of it with you guys like a small part as it may be but um just really proud of the work that you guys have been doing up there and and happy to be a part of it so i appreciate that yeah we'll have that big framed picture of the k-max and us in the tree at our aol booth oh cool uh yeah so it was like well, we got to have that one in there. And then we'll have our grinder chipper. Um, Suladoc is the contractor we're working with up there on the river. And they're going to have their 350 excavator and they have a wheeled excavator. Kind of just like our jobs are wrapping up. And we thought it was a good opportunity to showcase. Uh, we'll have some signs there from the McKinsey and the CNEM. Kind of like, hey, this is what we use to get it all cleaned up. Uh, it was a good run and uh, kind of showcase the tools we use, meet some people, and all that sort of good stuff. So, Where's your booth going to be? It's outside somewhere. It's a big-ass one, so okay. I'm, I'm not really sure. Uh, I've just kind of taken care of the equipment logistics, and then we have some in the office. So we're going to have a tent, TV rolling, and a bunch of frame stuff. Uh, just kind of be hanging out there for the weekend. Um, and then I know that Volvo and Vermeer, a lot of the people that were bringing their stuff there, they have booths trying to like sell people the equipment, obviously. And I'm just happy to hand my card out. And if anybody doesn't want to spend a million dollars and just hire me for a job, that sounds great. (laughs) Gotcha. That doesn't bother me. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have to be the guy that does every job. I'm, uh, if somebody's got something for me, that works perfectly fine. And as we come off all of this stuff, we'll have a little bit of availability between now and uh, when we get back into fire stuff this summer. Cool. Well, I will um, be at the show paddling around. And if anybody's watching on my Instagram or my Facebook, I'll, uh, I'll let them know where your booth is at and where they can find you. And then um, I think my very last question for you is uh, – What's your least favorite part of uh, running your business? Oh, man, the least favorite part. I would say generally having employees is difficult, but I have some, like, really excellent guys. Um, when we took this job, I didn't really want to scale. Right. But probably the least favorite part has been having to coordinate uh, with some landowners that there's, like, no – there's no winning. Um, the last year that's been the hardest of been like trying everything we can do to go above and beyond and help. And sometimes it's just like, you're in a no win, 
um, situation. I would say the last six months that's worn the hardest on me is, um, just doing everything I can to help and being in a no win spot. Um, and then it's like, I, what I see probably beyond this job is at the end of the day, you kind of just have to deal with some shit that isn't fun. <laughs> Sometimes you, you know, just have like, to eat a shit sandwich, huh? You just have to eat a shit sandwich and do it with a smile on your face. And, you know, like I'm looking forward to taking some time off and I'm like, you know, if I've got like 15 people working while I'm taking time off, that's not like really time off. So everybody just stop what they're doing. (laughs) I'm going to go somewhere for a week and like, I'll pay you to be at home. I just don't want to call that something's broke. Yeah. Right. Like just Uh, give me time to turn my phone off and not worry about it. Yeah. It's been a pretty hot and heavy last year and a half and, uh, looking forward to kind of coming up for air. Every time I feel like I'm going to do it, we get some other like side contract and I'm like, God damn, why did I do that? I know I talked to you a couple months ago and you're like, yeah, I'm going to take some time off. And then I talked to you a few weeks back. Like, man, we're slammed again. I was like, God, oh, poor Jeff. God, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, Oh yeah, I got another job in Shamolt. Shit. No. Oh, Shamolt. No. Yeah. I'd say in general, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, kind of, it is what it is and bigger isn't always better. I've had a few mentors over the years that, uh, just cause you have 20 employees and you've got all this nice equipment. Um, you know, you don't have to work every single thing you own and there's more to life than how much gross revenue you do in a year. So I'm kind of in one of those, what's the next phase look like. And I've got a bunch of really great guys that, uh, I don't think we're going to have a problem keeping busy, but I also don't see my operation uh, growing like it did the last two years in the next two years. The thought of that kind of makes my brain hurt. So, <laughs> Copy. Well, I think um, that's a pretty good way to leave off on this, Jeff, unless you got anything else to add. I just, I really appreciate your time. No, I think that's it. Um, we'll be hanging out there at the logging show. Um, swing by BS check out some of our stuff and we'll uh, have a good time there cool thanks Jeff I will uh, talk to you at the show yeah later man bye, bye.